0: everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. It breaks down professional cycling, uh, almost pedal stroke by pedal stroke. So if you want a deeper dive, make sure to check that out. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word before we get into our liege Bastogne liege big picture breakdown?
1: Choose the Hard Way is a podcast about how hard things build stronger humans and the fun they have doing those hard things. You can find us everywhere you listen and at hardway.com, and i'm on social at hardwaypod spencer my guest this week is dylan johnson lifetime grand prix competitor cycling coach youtuber with more than 14 million views and the thing that blew my mind in this interview was learning that allegedly 47 millimeter tires are the tire to be running and gravel races, Dylan's all about going as wide as possible. So if you want to hear more about that, about how Dylan built his YouTube empire and what's going on inside the world of gravel racing and the exponential increase in talent and competition, come check it out.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to listen to that. So is he just, he was like an elite racer who then turned into a YouTube sensation and now he kind of breaks down the minutiae of how to go fast on YouTube?
1: Yeah, exactly. And he see kind of those things happen concurrently. So he moved into the elite racing ranks. He was working initially at CTS, then he started his own coaching practice. And along the way, he realized that as a I think as a top of the funnel activity to get new coaching clients, it might make sense to start making videos. And the videos really took off. And they are excellent. Dylan has an exercise science degree. He lives in Brevard, North Carolina, which is the home of the Pizgau Mountain Bike Stage Race, and at some point, Spencer, I want to get your take on an incident that happened to me in that race, where uh, another competitor kicked my handlebars. <laughs> while I was, well, I was climbing, which I'm, I'm pretty sure you shouldn't do in a bike race. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's, uh, he's got some interesting takes. Come check it out. It's
0: funny you mentioned that about the gravel tires. I've started to wonder myself what is the difference between a 50 millimeter gravel tire and a mountain bike tire. I actually just bought 50 millimeter gravel tires to put on my mountain bike to see what happens. I'm excited to report back in a few weeks. Are you on a hardtail? Yeah. So gravel bike is what I'm on. A gravel bike with flat bars.
1: Well, I did a gravel event here in Maine. Was it, yeah, I guess it was last weekend. And one of the riders who was with me in uh, the group I was in was on a Santa Cruz. I think it's Highball. I think that's the name of their hardtail. And he had a rigid fork and was running gravel tires and was super super fast and had tons of leverage on the climbs. It's very hilly here in the mid coast main area. We uh, racked up, I think, more than five thousand feet of climbing in fifty miles.
0: Interesting. Yeah, we have a lot of like steep mid mixed surface roads here with like a lot of gravel on the on the paved because they dump sand on the roads here in the wintertime. I guess maybe it adds traction if it's icy. I don't quite understand it but Mm. it means from april to june like you're slipping inside i broke my arm last year slipping inside and around on a road bike i moved over to the mountain bike on these roads and i'm loving it i feel very old i'm not going very fast but uh it feels comfortable I, i love the fat tires
1: have you figured out what the optimal glove and glasses combination is to be as zero as possible while you're out there on your mountain bike gravel riding
0: all right, so if you people are like well, these guys are rambling, why aren't they talking about Liege? Because Liege, best known, Liege was boring AF. Oh my lord! So Remco on the destroys this race.
1: Spencer, you beat me. You beat me to the punch. My my take was yeah,
0: it's it was a really impressive performance from Remco. Um, but that that's kind of all I have to say about it. Once Tadej Pogacar crashed out, broke his wrist, we will discuss that. I think that's going to have big implications for the tour. It's a six weeks six week six week recovery. Nine weeks before the tour, not fantastic. Quickstep just kind of rode the front to La Redoute. Everyone knew it was coming. No one could stop it. He attacks, drops everyone almost exactly the same way he did last year and wins the race for the second year in a row. He looks good. What, what were your takeaways on this, Andrew?
1: Well, if people are wondering why we can't talk quite right so far today on this episode, I think it's because we were anesthetized by watching the H-Best <laughs> on the age. It exactly. was such an incredibly boring race. I felt like I was watching Sim City or something. It, it was just mind-numbing. And, you know, we'll get into what actually happened during the race. There were some interesting aspects of performances from certain riders. I want to unravel the mystery of Julian Alaphilippe's bar tape, uh, which looked like those like, uh, foam sleeves you might find on a 10-speed bicycle in 1988 there is something going on there but wow what a what a boring race is really the feeling that i had after watching it
0: well in this you i mean it's a good point so liege is a hard race we should just like pay respect to how hard it is it's probably the hardest one day race this kind of makes it boring this yeah it the fact it's it's been boring for many years like this is not a new thing i think we got a little spoiled in 2020 Covid sh- screwed up the calendar, and like every good rider in the world was at Liège, and it was amazing. Twenty twenty one was awesome as well. Even in twenty twenty two, you had Wout Van Aert chasing after Remco Evenepoel in the finale, so that was cool. But a lot of times, it's not a lot of top tier riders. You know, Remco and Pogacar were the only ones of let's call them the big six, the six riders that win pretty much every race these days, and. Tadej Pogacar crashes out, breaks his wrist, and no one can challenge Rimco. This is not, this is kind of how it used to work. If you remember Andy Schleck riding away, I think it was 2009, maybe, just it looked like he was on a training ride winning Liege, best on Liege. So we've seen this before. I would say Liege, personally, I'd say the weakest of the monuments in entertainment factor because of this reason. reason. I mean, do you have any suggested fixes for this? Try to get better riders make it a flatter course. I don't know. I'm, I'm out of suggestions for Liège.
1: I might get excommunicated from the church of cycling fandom for saying this, but I mean, is it time for something new?
0: I don't know. That's, that's a strong take. That's a strong take. It is. I do. I do sometimes wonder it's in the French speaking part of Belgium. It's not, it does not pop as much because the cycling fandom is not as deeply rooted. Like if this was in Flanders, there'd be fans all over the road and would say, this race is amazing. It's it kind of feels like, did everyone forget that the race is today? You know, the roadside is pretty abandoned except for the very last climb, except for the finish. You kind of wonder, like, does Belgium have to throw this bone to the French speaking region to keep peace within the country? So they each have a monument. So I don't know if it's going anywhere anytime soon, but I don't know. I feel like you could, I feel like you can salvage it. It's a really hard course. It's a really interesting region with two to three K climbs. I just think the start list has to get better. I mean, the fact that like, where was Van Art? Where was Vanderpool? Where's Jonas Vindergaard? Where's Primus Roglic? It's a different race if those guys are here.
1: Yeah. That's part of what I was wondering as I was watching the race and since it occurred, what I've been considering is, What does it tell us about the riders who are in the race and their prospects for the races that are coming up? That's, you know, it just is a uh, something that can help us discern and predict what's about to happen at the Giro, what's going to go down at the Tour. Are there any signs here in the tea leaves that we can discern? What was the point of Remco coming off of the volcano in his white casing? to to go out there and and destroy this race was this just like did he psychologically need to get another win under his belt or was this an important training moment in advance of the Giro and if we're thinking about how to innovate this race and this is part of a broader conversation I hope we can get Adam Hansen on here at some point in the near future but how about we fill the potholes you know how about we fill the potholes out on the course I saw some video of Arnold Schwarzenegger recently, there had been a lot of water damage from the atmospheric river in SoCal over the winter. And he had some giant potholes, I think, on the street that had not been filled. He did create a, you know, a publicity moment out of it, but he was out there with a friend, with some gravel and a shovel and some quick creep, filling in the pothole himself. So I'm wondering if in the future we might fill the potholes on these courses before we spend send the world's best and highest paid riders out there to go compete because one thing i did not want to see happen in this race was anyone and more specifically Tade Pagacha, ride into a pothole and exit the race and even less so i did not want to have that happen when i could not see it and spencer as I, as i'm i'm sure uh was the case for you when i turned the race on on gcn plus and there were some great moments in the coverage i want to talk about but the first 30 minutes of the coverage following the women's race was the commentators talking and b-roll from the sign-in and just riders cruising around in the village before the start of the race and they led with hey just like a heads up 80k into the race Tade <laughs> Uh, broke his wrist. And now we're going to show you 30 minutes of, you know, people signing autographs and yesterday's sign-in ceremony. It's like, what are we watching? What is going on? Can't we watch the There's race? There's
0: Demi Vollerang's dog. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Not at out.
1: Dog? She, she had a beautiful dog. Was, uh, I did have questions about her parents bringing that dog into a finish area, potentially dangerous. I'm sure you all have seen a few dogs on course in your day but a beautiful dog nonetheless. What, what did you think, Spencer? So
0: just the, the first point, Remco Evenepoel came to this race because it's a monument and he could win it. And yeah, I guess it's good for your legacy, uh, it's very good for your legacy to win a monument. Also, you get a big fat contract bonus. So that's why Remco Evenepoel decided he should probably come to this race. It does start to close. I mean, he's now a multiple monument, multi-time monument winner. Not many riders are ever in their career. I believe he's third he's either third or fourth in current monument wins in the peloton kind of closing that gap to pagachar Vanderpool. we can discuss later in the episode that he never actually races against those guys and when he does race against pagachar pagachar crashes or dnfs so it's kind he's almost in a dual track uh it reminds me of the bad days of boxing where like two guys would be undefeated and world champion and never actually box each other so we need to address that but That's why it's here. It is a monument. Even though they have potholes, even though no one seems to care about it in the actual region that the race is in, I yeah, I did sense some cost cutting there with the TV footage where I think what happened is the cameras are with the women. They're then at the finish. The cameras are not with the men. Like They're just using the same set of, of camera people. The cameras then have to rush out, refine the men, and they start recording the men's race. Did not in an age where we have start to finish, you know, televised races at Roubaix and Flanders and kind of seemed like Tour Down Under was start to finish almost. The fact that Liege bastogne Liege, a monument, is not start to finish televised, was not a great look. It felt pretty cheap, in my opinion. Devastating that Pogacar crashes. I think you're right. Yeah, you probably just hit a pothole. We'll never know. Who will we'll never know what happened. But um, this really complicates his Tour de France campaign. Before we get into that, should we talk about I- anyone else at this race? Like Tom Pickock finishing second, Santiago Petrago finishing third, Ben Healy fourth, Valentin, Valentin fifth. Those are all great finishers for those guys. Didn't really seem like anyone was on the same level as Remco. I mean, did you when they were riding towards La Dude, were you just expecting Remco to drop everyone and ride right away to the finish? Do you think anyone had a chance of staying with them?
1: I wish I had some controversial hot take here to counter that. The answer is no. I completely expected him to do that. The only surprise was seeing his rear wheel slip when he put down some serious power and there was a painting of someone's face on the road. Like, can we get rid of that as well? Like, if it's going to be wet. Yeah. Paint on a road. It's like 20% grade. Moment.
0: Yeah. Let's paint. Maybe, the not road a, up.
1: maybe not a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. We can put some grip tape over it and then paint it. Please folks. Come on. But yeah, no, no surprise to me. Looking at the results, uh, Ben Healy, of course, jumps out. And I, I mean, Spencer, just a broader question for you, because we tend to see writers specializing in the Cabo classics or the Ardennes classics, yet we have some writers, I guess specifically Prigachar, who's like, hey, I can do them all. What are your thoughts on what makes for the ideal type of writer to win in this kind of race like let's set aside bremco generational talent but like why do we see a different profile of riders specializing in these two different sets of classics
0: well just a elevation gain is is totally different i mean this is the four forty five hundred meters of elevation gain at liege which is a roughly what a tour de france mountain stage would be so you have people to, to climb a lot you know that's even that's significantly more than flanders you know in Roubaix is pretty much a flat race so bigger guys are going to be better on the cobblestones i actually i mean remco's very small i kind of wonder if he could have challenged for the win at flanders this year if they would have sent him I mean, he's so strong you'd think he could just figure it out over the cobblestones i'm actually a little confused why they didn't send him but clearly Soudal had a strategy where they would save everything for this send him in fresh off and out to training camp and he would smash everyone saving their season by the way if, if they don't if he doesn't win this race Sudal Quickstep is a laughing stock in Belgium. I mean, they had a terrible spring anytime he wasn't present. So he saves Sudal Quickstep. Sudol Quickstep is now the team of Rimco Evanopol. Move over Julian Al Wolfpack, get out of the bus. This is Rimco's bus now. It's actually a little shocking to see, but that he's a superstar. I guess they have him. Um, but other than that, it's it's really just tiny riders. I mean, look at Rimco and Pickcock. These guys are probably 125 pounds. 50 odd kilos. It's a really, you have to be a really, really small rider. I mean, Butrago's small in third, Ben small in fourth, Maduas is one of the more versatile riders to finish in the top 10 here. Guillaume Martin is sixth. These are climbers, basically. I mean, it doesn't seem like it because you don't have big alpine climbs in this race, but it's really a climber's race. And that's kind of what you tend to see. You don't, I guess originally it would be GC riders. We went away from that where then you would get kind of stage hunters uh, like a Damiano Kunigo type. Um, Jonas Vindergaard would probably do great in this race. Teddy Pogacar, if he didn't break his wrist, would do great here. Uh, Oddly, I think Vanderpool, he, uh, he almost won this in 2020, but he had done a 60K solo breakaway the day before at a meaningless race and then was a little too tired. But he could have mowed down everyone in the front group and won it. So traditionally, smaller climbers do better. I do think the talents are so big now. Like Vanderpool and Van Ark could probably do well here if they wanted. I mean, I think Van Ark got third here last year, a week after finishing second at Roubaix. So, riders are getting so good that they can bridge the gap between the climbing Ardennes and the Kabbalah Classics.
1: I'm noticing that Quidkowski uh, was a DNF. Do you have any information about that?
0: I think I saw him get dropped. Um, he's not been good all spring. Well, there you go. There's, yeah. there's the update. He's kind of, <laughs> I don't know if he's been sick or what, but he gets that Amstel gold victory last year, and it kind of seemed like he said, adios, I'm I'm happy now. Um, I'll just collect my paycheck. That, I don't know if that's what's going on, but it kind of seems like it. Maybe he was just ill. But he's not been a top-tier rider for a while, um, which brings us his career trajectory reminds me a bit of one julian al philippe both riders are world champions al philippe two-time world champion recently we saw al philippe I mean, hats off to said all quick they did great work at this race a lot of it was done by al philippe just setting pace on the front at no point did he appear to be riding for a result here just he's a domestique for remco Evenepoel now i guess you know he did some good work on the front pulled off day done I mean, this is a little shocking to see. Were you taken aback by the fact that their star rider just 12 months ago is now a domestique on the team?
1: I, I have in my notes Alaphilippe is the new Kwiatkowski. Yeah, he's morphed, <laughs> he's morphed into this domestique. He's doing his job in that role. I wonder, I mean, be, when you do look at his bar tape, you have to wonder like what's going on, what lingering effects does he have from his numerous crashes and injuries. <laughs> seriously in the the past 12 months this of course is the race where things went severely sideways for him last year i guess after they had gone severely you could sideways you could insert in the any race into yeah <laughs> <sense>. <laughs> yeah but i mean you know the 2022 was the year of al philippe getting intimately acquainted with the ground and I think we're seeing the after effects of that now. Will he come back? Will he be a writer at the same level? I don't know. I expect that he's going to win a stage at the Tour. I feel like that's what he has to do to optimize his upside in the uh, in the transfer market, because I assume he's on the way out. Also, wow, what a genius statement. He's going to need to win a stage at the Tour de France if he wants to get paid more. But, you know, he's the writer who's... He's probably actually capable of still doing a ride at that level. So that's, if I'm him, that's probably what I'm swinging for to get some more dolo in uh, well, 2024.
0: Yeah, and maybe the, the deal inside the team was, you, you work for us here. Just do work for Al- Evanapol, and it's the Al-Philippe show at the tour, outside of the flat sprint stages. I think Evanapol's not going to be there, so Al-Philippe's going to have free reign to try to win a stage on pretty much Every day, and yeah, he he's talented enough. He'll probably get one. I like that prediction. Tom Pickcock. Um, he was after Strata. I might have gotten a little too excited. I was thinking this guy's amazing. He's finally broken through. He had a, a solid spring, he had a concussion, so maybe that taints the sample. But what second at Amstel? Or sorry, third at Amstel, second here, blew up three consecutive races races after trying to follow the leader. Um he did. Follow Ebenapol here. Just seemed like he realized this is too hard. I cannot stay with him. I will explode. Sat up, waited for the group, sprinted for second. Super smart move. Great result in a race that's almost 260 kilometers. His best result in a race over 250 kilometers ever in his career. Best monument result. He'd never finished higher than 14. So this is a great stepping stone for Pickcock. How do you rate his spring? Were you a little disappointed in him?
1: I believe that there are aspects of concussion and TBI that we don't yet understand in terms of their impact on physical performance. And I feel that the story that we're going to be hearing six to 10 months from now is that the aftermath of Pidcock's concussion was much more severe than they thought. And I think that that's what we're seeing right now. I think physically, I think he's at the level that he needs to be. And I feel like something's going on related to the concussion. That is inhibiting his body from being able to express the level of training and ability that it actually has. So I think that's what's going on. I feel like there's some kind of governor or rate limiter there. And if we were to look at last year, Pidcock has some outstanding performances. He also setting aside this concussion, which understandably has impacted his performance, he seems to have a a degree of fragility that could have some bigger ramifications for him going forward it appears that he's capable of intermittently these very big performances last year i believe it was a stomach bug is what they attributed his kind of ongoing troubles to but he like he kept getting sick he may have had some chronic fatigue from his year-round racing schedule and you know thinking back on our discussion spencer with margot Pinati, this is a guy who I'm, I don't see him having a super long career. I think this is maybe, what would you say? Like six to eight years in front of this guy, max.
0: I don't know. I mean, he's so talented. It makes me sad to think about that, but you're right. He does seem to have a fragility that other riders don't. I do wonder in the concussion thing, you might be spot on with that. Do you remember Roland green? He was the yeah, best mountain biker in the world. It's totally. a concussion. Yep. Yeah. And I think, the, uh, he was never the same again but he could train really well there was just a governor on his ability as you say in races you just p- people don't quite understand what's going on there i think tyler farrar was similar ian boswell retired also because of a similar issue so uh, looking back he might probably shouldn't have raced any of this i mean these these, these are good some good results but should he even have been here? You know, maybe just take a few months off after getting the concussion. We saw Sidney Crosby do that about 10 years ago. He took like a season off after some concussion issues. People were giving him crap about it. And he's gone on to have 10 great years since then. So maybe that would have been the smarter move. I do wonder if Pickock, like I'm looking at Evan and race schedule. It I envision Patrick Lefebvre, the so all quick Quickstep team manager, as being like an overbearing stage parent to Rimco and he really just has him at training camps, rolls him out for these preparation races, sends them out, wins a monument, goes home. Like you wonder, would Pickcock be getting better results? Would he be competing with these top guys if his schedule was managed a little bit better? I just wonder about, it's like an eight-week spread between Strado Bianchi and this race. That seems too long. No one else was trying to bridge that gap. You think, who was his biggest competitor? At Strada, it was Vanderpol. Vanderpol's not here. You know, he's trying to beat uh, Milan-San Remo, He was out, but then he's at, you know, Flanders. You think of the, the people in front of him in that group, Vanderpol, Van Art, Pogacar. Two of those three are not at this race. It just seems like he's trying to do too much would, would be my armchair assessment. And yeah, he could have a short career because of that.
1: I like your description there, Spencer. Remco has a bit of a show dog quality about him.
0: (laughs) He does. That's exactly yeah. (laughs) Someone described him as like a statue that they imagine they just kind of place on the pedestal in the team bus when he's not, you know, in action, and then just pick him up and put him on the bike.
1: Yeah. So taking a look at this performance, he's flying. Remco and the volcano seems to be a winning strategy. Do you feel he's going to deliver at the Giro?
0: So he does, he does come out of training camps at altitude really, really strong. Like think of San Sebastian last year before the Vuelta, um, unbelievable. <laughs> it does grind my gears. None of these good results are against the best riders. Like could we have seen this at Flanders? What, what what was the issue with that, Patrick? But then he goes to the Vuelta. He was really good at the Vuelta. He does tend to degrade the longer he is away from his life force, which is the top of the volcano in the Canary Islands. So. He probably won't have this super, super duper form for four more weeks. You know, he will have human moments at times. Um, just his body reacts really well to altitude. Um, I, I'm kind of the same way. I come down from altitude for a few days, I'm flying, and then I kind of revert back to the mean. But, you know, he still has Primus Roglic. He still has the, the Giro course, which if you remember in, I think, 2013, Bradley Wiggins went and thought he was going to dominate the Giro and he gets punched in the mouth by the Italian course. This could happen, but they've got to feel pretty good about it. And I, I'd imagine he's going to be the betting favorite going into the race. There's a lot of time trials, which in theory is great for him. The climbing shouldn't be an issue, uh, but the zero is difficult. I wouldn't start planning your post—you know, your your post-victory parade to the streets of uh, of uh, Brussels, whatever his t- his favorite town in Belgium is—just yet. I mean, Primoz Roglic is I'd actually be concerned if I was him that Primos isn't at this race. Like, where is Primos? Is he just at altitude somewhere training? Is he going to be the best we've ever seen him? I don't know. I, I, I'm i predicting a big performance from Roglic at the Giro.
1: Yeah, Primos is just perfecting his telemark landing podium stance somewhere <laughs> in front of America over and over <laughs> and over. That's what I but, think is going on. But I mean, I have to, you mentioned Primos. So Primos, of course, is now going to have the superest of super domestiques, Mr. taking a look around himself, Seth Koos. And I'm wondering what impact does that have at the Giro? Of course, I think it's going to have a very positive impact, particularly when we think about the level of team that Remco will have there. And this is not a Tour de France preview podcast. I also am wondering what is going on inside Yumbo that Sepp is not going back to the tour. And what does that do for the dynamic within the team where you're removing two riders who, without whom there would not have been a Jonas victory in 2022? So what's going to happen when those riders are at the Giro rather than the tour?
0: That does seem odd. Is it confirmed Sepkus is not going to the tour?
1: I read that somewhere. I'm, does, that, does that sound authoritative? I'm gonna pull this. I'm gonna pull this up. I'm having uh, having the assistant Google it right now. I
0: mean, I agree with you that it does seem crazy because without Sepp and Primus Roglic, there's no Jonas Mindegaard Tour de France win. It's my maybe I'm just in denial. It's my personal theory, they're both going to be at the tour. That this is all bullshit for lack of a better word. Primus is going to the tour, Sepp's going to the tour. I'll believe it when I see it. If, if when and if they're not
1: there so you think this is a rope-a-dope move this is just uh, some mind games from the masters of mind games yumbo visma
0: maybe not mind games maybe just managing the stress on the writers <laughs> like maybe maybe primos doesn't even know he's going to the tour just richard pluge has this plan and he's saying no no go to the giro win the giro then you get vacation i think we're all familiar with this and then oh you get a call actually we need you for July. Are you booked for July? Just come on over. Just come to this little oh we're at the start of the tour, France. I guess you're going. So I it might be something like that where they're just trying to bring these guys along without too much stress. Yeah. I have a hard time believing they're not gonna be at the tour. But you know, Sep is you know, he he kind of marches to the beat of his own drum. You know, I wouldn't even I wouldn't be shocked if he just said, I don't want to go to the tour, I want to try to win. Stages at the zero. I want to try to win the vuelta. i I wouldn't try to get inside the mind of Sepkus. he uh, is a unique individual.
1: all right. I have found the source, and the date on this is april twenty fifth so we know that this is a fresh, hot take. This is from Jim Cotton over at Bella News. I know a lot of people have had. Some negative things to say about Velo News in the last six months and what's going on there, but I have to say Jim has had some really outstanding reporting. He's gotten some good gets, so shout out Jim. This is another one, and I don't know if Jim wrote the headline. Probably not. Top editor probably did, but I'm loving this headline. Sepkusic embraces in quotes unique opportunity of surprise Euro Italia call up. Subhead, Coloradan, relishes challenge of his first Giro since 2019 after his season was turned upside down by late addition to Primos Roglic's support crew. This is what I think most riders who have been at the Tour for multiple consecutive years would call a demotion in practice. And, you know, it's also going to put Primoz in a, in a really advantageous position. These guys have competed together in Grand Tours, numerous times. This is a winning combination. And I'm really excited to see if Primos can stay upright because that's the biggest obstacle I think between him and winning. I don't think it's Remco.
0: Well is that why SEP is going? So that if Primos goes down, they're Ooh. not left with uh with nothing. Like last year. Last year sucked for them at the Zero. That must have been demoralizing and embarrassing. I think they want to avoid a situation where their top guy is out on stage four and they're just riding around. I've heard of teams. They just listen to music through their ears. Yeah. They don't even, they just don't even have the director talking to them. They're just playing (laughs) tunes through there. So I I bet they might've been doing that for the last 15 stages of that zero.
1: Oh, wow. But I mean, so let's say that this scenario unfolds at some point, we're seeing a, a giant freshly shorn, slab of Primos's buttocks as we've seen in <laughs> most most grand tours in the past couple of years at some point in the race where he's suddenly 5k behind and chasing back, which unfortunately we've seen a number of times. So Sepp suddenly has the scepter of leadership thrust into his hands. Sepp is on the record as having said that he has no interest in team leadership and he really enjoys this super domestic climbing domestique role. As you've noted before, Spencer, this is a highly compensated role. It's one of the toughest jobs in professional cycling. You have to have superior genetic gifts coupled with superior training to be able to go do what these athletes do. So they're highly compensated and they don't have that pressure of having to actually win races. And that's what Sep enjoys. So let's say Sep is put in this position where Primos is out of the race. He is a stage He's a stage winner in Grand Tours, so we know he can do that. But it's a really different thing when you were expected to do something and everything's riding on your shoulders versus the team's like, hey, you're off the leash today. Go do this. So it would be interesting to see what happens if, in fact, Primos uh, shows us his his backside again.
0: And I mean, they tried to make him. In 2021, they did this experiment where he was going to lead them for – you know, three or four one day or sorry, one week stage races, it did not go well at all. Um, Really, really was just didn't seem to agree with them. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe they think, yeah, maybe he could compete in the GC, but worst case scenario, he wins what two, three stages So he could really, really do well in the stage win category here. I, I do wonder though what, then what is the plan for the tour? Who, who are they? yeah who could exactly. they possibly be sending to replace these two guys that is where it gets a little weird for me
1: well now i really want to know who the rest of the roster is for for the Giro, because when you speak of this kind of one week test run or a test run in a one week stage race for a Yombo Visma rider they of course tried this with rohan dennis as well and he very talented rider but spectacularly imploded on an uphill time trial when you yes. have that opportunity, right? And yes. I mean, he's like one of the—he's a former world champion. He's one of the best time trialists in the world, and he just melted down. It was—I felt kind of sad actually watching it because he's a talented writer.
0: You'd imagine there's something in between the years. Um, actually, our buddy John the Kaplan just put out a newsletter this morning where he's asking ChatGPT what makes a Tour de France winner. Interesting. I, I don't—I think ChatGPT is under-indexing the mental part. If you—if you could imagine that a computer not. Really knowing what the competitor mindset is. But I, I need to run something by you, Andrew. Okay. I wake up this morning, bad habit, check my phone right when I get up. Shouldn't do that. Shame on you. I, I see in front of me Alejandro Valverde says, Remco Evanipole is better than Tade Pagachar. This seems crazy. Like, wh- what are we talking about here, Valverde? Do you, do you have a response to this, Andrew?
1: You know, I know Valverde is back in the testing pool because he's he's doing UCI gravel <laughs> races. I'm wondering if I'm wondering if like a lot of uh, high level leadership founders in tech and people in cars <laughs> exactly like, like, is, art, is, is Valverde dabbling with psychedelics right now? Is he perhaps microdosing before he puts out some of these statements? Because I I think that that is a very Far-fetched statement. And I'm wondering if there's some kind of beef between them. Is it an inside joke? Like, no way.
0: <laughs> that that could be. That would be a hilarious inside joke. But yeah, when you've won the Tour de France two times, you're on track to match the first five years of Eddie Merckx's career. And then we're talking about a guy who's never raced at the Tour de France. I I think it's kind of clear that we need to see a little bit more from Remco if we're going to call him better than Taddy Pogacar.
1: Yeah, the thing that Tade has exhibited from the beginning is a level of maturity and just positivity. He has none of that bratty quality that we've seen from Remco. And it's going to be interesting as Remco's career advances uh, and once he gets past kind of the show dog phase, what's going to happen and will he emotionally mature as a leader, as a writer. I mean, even some of the behavior we've seen from him in races earlier this year, just some real, some real head scratchers that I don't think are going to fly down the road.
0: Yeah, I think particularly I'm, we're thinking of Volta Catalunya. Yeah, where, in my mind, he got worked over by a sub, not subpar, but sub peak Primus Roglic. So it, it, it kind of reminds me of like a mid major you know, like the Boise state football team when they would go undefeated and then they'd have to play, you know, a a power five school in the, in a bowl game where, yeah, it's all been going well for him, but you know, how's he going to handle it when he's racing against the best guys, you know, and certainly he's done this at world championships, but that's kind of it. You know, he's not facing off against the top, top guys at the biggest races, you know, consistently or at all. So it's a little weird to me. They're not sending him to the Tour de France. The guy's 23 going on 24. Um, what are we waiting for? Maybe get him to the Tour where he's going to win the Giro and then he's going to do the Tour when he's almost 25 years old. That seems a little strange to me. But
1: What a, what a loser.
0: <laughs> I just retire at that age. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm sure Patrick Lefebvre, if he was on this podcast, would say I'm an idiot and they just don't have the team to support him. So you're just setting him up for failure if he's send him the Tour. Yeah, that's absolutely that's, true.
1: They don't have that's a team to support him at the
0: valid, Tour. valid. But UAE sent Taddy Pogacar, 21 years old, to the Tour with a, a dog poopy team. You know, the guy hadn't won a Grand Tour before, and he wins the freaking race. And it sets off like a fantastic run of his career. So, you know, you don't know until you know. And, you know, if you're really good, like, like Pogacar, you don't need a good team at the Tour. I hate to spoil it for all these managers that are paying $55 million a year in salary to these riders. If you've got a good top rider, they can make it work without the right support.
1: Absolutely. Well said, sir.
0: Should we talk about Tati Pagachar's broken wrist and surgery? Um, yeah, we should talk about recovery it. recovery does, does not sound fantastic. This is probably why Jonas Vindergaard, why when I was saying, where is Vindergaard? Where is Roglic? This is why they're not racing at Liège, because this is a huge setback before the Tour.
1: Yeah, I think it's a massive setback, and I've I've talked to a few people who've had this injury, including my friend Brian Andre, shout out Andre for giving me the deep dive on what happens with the scaphoid process in healing, Um, but it sounds like, you know, he's going to come back from this, it's, this is, as everyone has noted, this is an area with very low blood flow, so it's a tricky injury to heal, yet you can still train in arrow bars, I guess, can't put pressure on the hand. So I don't know. Maybe now's the time when when he gets out and rides into the back of a bus on his time trial bike. Uh, You know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think he'll be able to continue to train. They just need to get him to a volcano stat. And I think he's going to come out swinging and be just fine for the tour. And then on top of that, again, we don't know what's going on inside this guy's head. We don't even know what happened because. The race organizers (laughs) didn't give us televised coverage of what went down. Although, again, reports are the rider in front of him rode into a pothole, had an exploded wheel, and then he followed suit and fell on the the ground and uh, broke his scaphoids. He's got an injured wrist. I think he's going to come back stronger than ever. But even the photos of him in the team car post-surgery, the guy's just like smiling. He just seems like such a positive uh, positive person. I thought it was really telling. We didn't talk about this, but there was a quote from Remco after Liège that he talked about how he had had asked the team's nutritionist for permission to eat some French fries after the race if he won. And then I just thought about you know when Tade won Flanders, right? He just like immediately. Had like a giant thing of frites in his hand and was just like chowing down. I doubt that he called the team nutritionist to get a permission slip to have some fries after he kicked everyone's ass.
0: Yeah. Well, you should have asked the team's stylist if you should wear all white in the rain. That That would have have been a good move. Maybe not the best move. (laughs) Well, that or or, something. You know,
1: know, at Valmont, that's what they call a show of force.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Is, is there a
1: bigger flex than showing up in an all white skin suit? I mean, we've seen Vanderpool do it. I know it's a, a fashion faux pas, but we've seen some changes at this move.
0: I want this, yeah. This I'm glad you bring this up. Adam Blythe was saying the same thing on GC and like, oh, this is a baller move. I mean, Vanderpool looks great, Remco looks great. You know who doesn't look great? Almost everybody else. I mean, Don't I'm convinced it. there was a three year period where Alexander Kristoff was amazing and was underrated because of he looked, let's say, a little uh, bountiful in his, in his all-white kit. You know, the guy was like probably 75 kilos, and people were talking about how he's a, like an obese man. It's like, no, it's the all-white shorts. Get rid of them, Christoph, and you'll, your stock will go up. You'll get paid more. But you had a good question uh, via text about, let's say you're Tate Pagachar, and you break your wrist. What happens then? Like, Do you have a, a top orthopedic surgeon on call i'm a little curious about this and you, you said did they get world-class care like nfl players i think nfl players might get like someone who was pre-med at a state school and then dropped out of med school I don't, I don't agree, I don't think I don't NFL agree care with that. is very yeah. good
1: yeah we got we kind of have different uh we have different information on the level of nfl teams care are that.
0: the cheapest organizations in the country these guys share hotel rooms and fly economy
1: They wanna protect their investments though. So I I do believe them when it comes to medical, other than the fact that they're exposing players to severe TBI and some very negative consequences every time that they go play a game or practice. Other than that, when it comes to things like orthopedic injuries, they tend to be on the cutting edge. They do tend to have some of the best orthopedic surgeons on staff. And, I mean,
0: what do you mean? I don't think they're, I think maybe they a partner with like a local orthopedic surgeon and they get first dibs on their top spots, you know, so they could get someone quickly. I don't think the Kansas City Chiefs don't have an orthopedic surgeon on payroll. I, I would imagine.
1: You know, I'm going to look into this. I'm going to do a deeper dive. Like I know for a fact that the, uh, when the Raiders were based in Oakland, I I knew who their orthopedic surgeon was. I knew people who went to that orthopedic surgeon and I know the people that that individual was treating and they tended to uh, treating everyday people. But in addition to that, had a deep roster of people who made their livings uh, as athletes and whose ability to make income depended on recovering rapidly from orthopedic care and getting good surgery. But yeah, I mean, Maybe we're splitting hairs here. There are a lot of people with a lot of different opinions about this, but uh, if you've ever had an orthopedic injury or if you've had a problem with your heart, for example, as I have, what you'll quickly learn is that there is a continuum of ability and approaches medicine is an art as much as it is a science, even in 2023 with something, you know, this is a very routine injury. This is the scaphoid process. It's a bone in the wrist. So it may be relatively rote. Ghent also is a friend of mine, Eric Matthews, pointed out, shout out, Eric. You know, Ghent is a university town. You have a number of professional sports teams there, uh, very proximate to where this race took place. So it's probable he got great care. On the other hand, it happens all the time where these racers are in the equivalent of like a massive car wreck, basically. And yeah, they get put in an ambulance, they show up somewhere, Orthopedic injuries are not life-threatening. And Spencer, you mentioned you broke your arm. When I was 13, I broke my arm playing football and um, I wasn't able to get to the hospital for like five hours. It hurts pretty bad. So I think that they probably wanna try to get these riders to care and get it taken care of as rapidly as possible. And that likely means whoever's on call that they have access to is doing the surgery. The question of course is with the level of resources, that these teams have, do they have someone in mainland Europe who can just like fly at a moment's notice to come do orthopedic care?
0: And something to remember that, and something to remember is that these team managers are very wealthy people. One of the points of owning a professional cycling team right. is to pay yourself a multi million dollar salary. So there's a very good chance that they have their own medical contacts that they could refer the rider to or even fly them in to provide care to a, a top rider, a, a Midpack pack riders probably just stuck using whoever's at the hospital. And also, should we share the juicy little secret we may or may not have learned about uh, a certain GC contender running or not running before Grand Tour stages?
1: I think that we need to, that's a great teaser, come back to learn more about what's going on with running and pro cyclists and whether Primo's actually getting out of the hotel and going running before major races. Yeah, we'll we'll tease this out. We'll get back to Marco on that. We'll see if we're cleared hot. And then we're still gathering more data about this. I also have been uh, talking to a coach I'm working with who had some theories about this. I
0: will right, well, thank you, Andrew, for coming yeah, on. Take we will talk to you soon.